Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. It makes really interesting noises when we lift, like as little like pings and dings as the thing kind of rides up there. And you kind of get used to them, but it's still, still a little bit eerie. You kind of listen for the right noise. And then that, you know, we do it and we'd repeat and then just slowly but surely lifted it, you know, between four and six inches at a time. It, I mean, I think, Joe, oh, Joe, we're pretty smooth, all things considered. I would say so. The building's still there. <laughs> Thankfully. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't, we wouldn't, still, we wouldn't be on the podcast. <laughs> uh, that would have sucked. We, we'd, we'd all be in a different room right now. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Have I got an episode for you today? My guests today are William Mandera Jr., AIA CEO and co-owner at Mancini Duffy, Joseph R. Levi, project manager from Paverini McGovern, and J. Benjamin Alper, PESE, Principal at Severud Associates, Consulting Engineers. So basically, I have the architect, the construction manager, and the structural engineer to get their insight on this project. Bill Mandera is the Chief Executive Officer and co-owner of Mancini Duffy, a national design firm with a 100-year-plus history and tech-forward approach based in New York City. Bill Mandera is the Chief Executive Officer and co-owner of Mancini Duffy, a national design firm with a 100-year-plus history and tech-forward approach, based in New York City. Bill comes from a family that is in the business. His father and grandfather were general contractors. Throughout his career, Bill has believed in having consistency of vision and values in that we should never put ourselves or our vision ahead of our clients which I totally agree with. This consistency allows response to clients quickly with clarity and authority. Joe Levi brings more than 20 years of experience to his role as construction project manager. He currently serves as a core and shell project manager at TSX Broadway in Times Square. 
Joe leverages his robust experience in development, implementation, and execution of programming and procedures, which has proven to generate both immediate and long-term results. His completed project experience includes mid-rise residential, commercial, industrial, high-rise hotel, federal, and institutional projects. Ben Alper joined Severud Associates in 2005 as an engineer and steadily progressed upward through the ranks and in 2020 was promoted to associate principal. Throughout his career, Ben has taken on increasingly challenging projects such as the TSX Broadway Redevelopment, the Weeksville Heritage Center in Brooklyn, and the LA Forum renovation in Inglewood, California. Outside of the office, Ben serves the structural engineering community as a member of the ASCE 726, 7-26, Minimum Design Loads Committee, as well as its Seismic Load Subcommittee. He is also active with NCSEA, NYC Buildings, and SEAONY, where he is past director. Okay, if you didn't figure it out yet with the bios that I just read, The project we are chatting about today is the absolutely incredible TSX Broadway in Times Square in New York City. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. In the heart of Times Square, an ambitious project unfolded transforming this iconic commercial intersection in a remarkable way. Envisioned by LNL Holding Company in partnership with Fortress Investment Group, the project entailed a $2.5 billion extensive redevelopment of an existing building, previously a Doubletree Hotel, while preserving the historic Palace Theater, a 110-year-old landmark. TSX Broadway is the vision of LNL Development Corporation and Mayfield Development who recognized early on Times Square's shift toward more experience-based retail, hospitality, and entertainment, including show-stopping Broadway productions that will appeal to global visitors. The goal? To create an entertainment ecosystem. The challenge? In order to make way for up to 75,000 square feet of new flagship-ready retail space, the Palace Theater needed to be raised 30 feet into the air, the entire theater. What followed was a saga of engineering marvel and very intricate planning. Bill Mandera, CEO and co-owner at Mancini Duffy, the architect of record, summarized the project's scope. The Palace Theater existed with the Doubletree Hotel years ago, well, before we started this project, as a traditional theater that you entered via Times Square, you entered in the lobby and there was, you know, the traditional area and it took up this space on the middle in Times Square. What we did was we, through a series of different moves, we enabled for that theater to be raised 30 feet in the air, which involved, and again, it's, it's really hard to distill this down, but it involved ostensibly scooping out a cellar and a sub-cellar installing an elaborate jacking system along with a large concrete ring beam around the theater and creating a pocket in which for that theater to go. At the same time, we demolished the old Doubletree Hotel and built a new hotel on top of it. So that then created this space that was accessible from Times Square in which you have retail space, you have stage, you have all of this 
potential space out on Times Square now because the entrance to the hotel, both the hotel and the theater are now on 47th Street. So by raising that theater up 30 feet in the air, we were able to install a small, you know, put a lobby that you enter on 47th Street that takes you up to the third floor where there's more of a grand lobby and the theater functions that way now. TSX Broadway is a 581-foot-tall, 46-story mixed-use building. The program consists of galleries, a one-of-a-kind outdoor stage that cantilevers out into Times Square, a 150-seat backstage venue, the historic Palace Theater, a hospitality lounge that features the largest terrace in Times Square, an expansive wraparound exterior LED screen that spans 18,000 square feet across the facade, making it the largest signage opportunity in Times Square, and a 669-key hotel with unobstructed views of Times Square and exclusive entertainment suites. The hotel component is what's known as a lifestyle brand hotel. Joe Levi, project manager from Paverini McGovern, gave some insight into what lifestyle brand hotel means. So lifestyle hotels are about being authentic. It's a come-out-as-you-are approach to hospitality, exciting food, beverage, experiences. It's sensory-driven. I go to a lot of hotels, so I know this. (laughs) (laughs) It's very much sensory-driven. Sounds, smells. I don't know if you've ever been to, you know, like the one hotel or other hotels. Sometimes you walk in. And you could smell, there's a fav- fragrances now. Hotels have their own fragrances that you <laughs> smell as you go in. And some people even buy them. You know, that's just part of the sensory driven. Even the lighting program plays into it. Loud music, they're more electric. If you have tattoos, they want you to roll up your sleeve and show your tattoos. If you have purple hair, wear your hair out. That's a lifestyle hotel. It is a new brand by Hilton called Tempo. I think it was the last week they had the uh, opening party for it. It's pretty amazing. What's really cool about the hotel, I would say, which is just makes it unique, is that there's rooms along the one corner of the building that they call the ball drop rooms, in which you look out and you just see right down where the ball drops in Times Square and New Year's Eve. And I would imagine those rooms will be fetching a pretty penny this year and for years to come. But I think, you know, the hotel has a lot of really cool features. It has a great, you know, great lobby, event space. But those rooms are what really, really make it pretty, pretty incredible. And it is, it is actually the first of the Tempo brand for Hilton. Another innovative element of the project is the outdoor stage and expansive wraparound exterior LED screens. The performance venue, known as the Icon Stage, hovers 30 feet over the street when fully extended. The stage is the first of its kind, integrating broadcast and streaming capabilities that will showcase TSX Broadway as a major venue for performances, global product launches, and memorable events. The whole frontage of that portion of the building is all LED signage. And what happens is there's these custom doors, they're actually, they were made for this project, these these doors that are consisting of the LED sign that open inward to the to the building, and then there's the stage over there. So at any moment, a moment in time, you could be in Times Square looking up and you see these doors kind of come in, and who knows what could be there. It's uh, it's pretty cool. You know, one of the challenges with that stage when with this project really was the acoustic separation because 
all kidding aside, you know, there's a retail component in which you could have some very loud activities. You could have a Broadway show, and at the same time, you could have, you know, some sort of concert out there. And they all need to function independently. You can't have people who pay top dollar at a world-class theater to go see a Broadway show hearing boonks, 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 or whatever coming from the retail theater or God knows what from, you know, from whatever, whatever could be going on in the stage. So there is a tremendous amount of time, energy, and design and innovation that went into the acoustic separation of, of these different uses by the entire design team, quite frankly, and, and construction team. I mean, everybody really put their heads together on that. And from a construction standpoint, a lot of things surrounding the stage had other le- levels of complexity in terms of the timing and sequencing for the installation of the LED sign. The entirety of the LED sign was completed before the hoist was even removed. So there was a time at which the hoist was actually passing behind the LED sign. And there were slab sections and uh, permanent structure that wasn't completed by the time the LED sign was placed. So we had all of our hoist comebacks behind the LED sign. We were making crane picks, boom picks from the street over the LED sign into the job site to complete these hoist leave out sections. So like Bill said, you know, you have this, this extremely complicated LED sign, probably the one of the largest and more complicated LED signs in the northeastern part of the United States. And then add to that the logistical complexity of installing that sign right in Times Square. And then doing the work behind it and in and around it out of sequence. And one of the things that we didn't mention is that this project is not a new building. This project is an alteration, which meant that through all the things we just described and all the complexities of building a new hotel, putting the signage in, doing it all of it in Times Square and moving this theater and having a pocket for the theater to go to, we needed to keep 25% of the floor area of the existing building of the, of the exact, of the actual slabs of the building. So the thing that Joe's talking about with hoist and taking things out all the while, we had to retain pieces of that existing building to, to keep this as an alteration, which was important because the original building was actually overbuilt. And if we were to take that whole thing down and start over again, we would lose all of that square footage, which, I think it was about 40,000, 50,000 square feet. And as you can imagine, it's pretty darn valuable. So that was just another added level of complexity for Joe's team in particular to to just work through all of these things where typically if you just blew everything out, you're like, whatever, we're just going to build this here or there. But feathering through all that stuff. Fun fact, Post Malone was the first to perform on the epic icon stage overlooking Times Square in July of 2023. Now, mixed-use projects, particularly ones of this intricacy, present a lot to consider up front. What's super important to consider here is that it is in Times Square, and, you know, the, the, the zoning for Times Square does require a certain amount of signage, and because, because of that, it allows you to do certain things, like in some instances, the signage is outboard of the building a bit. It gives you options to, you know, potentially occupy some of that space in there and, and different things. So the big, the big thing is like, you know, there's not a lot of places I would imagine where signs of this, this, this stature are allowed. So that would be my first question: is How are you gonna? How are the local authorities and people gonna gonna look upon this? Understanding the acoustics and how that plays into the space it, when you're looking from the street at the LED sign directly behind the LED sign, you're gonna have your retail space. And directly behind that retail space is actually the theater spaces. 
So understanding how sound is being transmitted, obviously, from the street through that sign and into the entertainment space or the retail space and then into the theater. And then seeing Duffy spent a lot of time understanding that because they introduced a number of acoustical provisions to, I guess, mitigate any noise that was coming from the street. Yeah, it's, it's completely separated from each other. Yeah. So what you have is a series of uh, not just acoustical partitions that were introduced, we have acoustical slabs that come into play. So in some of the retail spaces, you'll have acoustical slabs going from the ninth, uh, eighth floor down so that once there is a retail tenant, any vibrations or sound transmissions are mitigated by the acoustical slab. And right adjoining that, well, you know, adjoining that retail space is, you know, obviously your, your theater space on one side and we have acoustical walls and partitions extending up and down all around and surrounding the, the theater. Yeah, I mean, to that end, you know, the vibration is really potentially even more important to separate than the actual sound because that's that that's where it transfers really so all the things Joe was describing and you know we worked with Ben's team as well to to separate those things was was super super important to get that right already a complex project the team encountered countless logistical hurdles to deliver the building including demo and excavation so we had the demolition coming at one location of the building and the excavation coming out another window of the building on 47th Street. Eventually that changed and we moved a little bit to 7th Avenue. I'm not going to boggle you down with the details of how we got in and out of the building, but obviously considering, you know, the geographic location and that it's the busy, you know, busiest intersection in the northern northern hemisphere, at least the United States, you know, you have to contend with people. COVID obviously you know, emptied the city out. So we, in certain respects, that helped us with moving material and debris in and out of the building. But in other respects, it hurt us. We were, you know, obviously manpower, the COVID requirements and restrictions that were imposed. Eventually, once the city started filling back in, it started trickling a little bit slower than you would have expected. And by the time the city got to full capacity, I would say we were almost completed and topped out with the project. But nevertheless, you know, you, you are still contending with massive amounts of people crossing sidewalks. You know, it's, uh, you got to protect the people. That's what we do here in New York City. Sidewalk sheds, crossing guards. The most difficult thing I would say that you have to contend with really with respect to New York City is the movement of traffic, scheduling of concrete trucks, debris removal, but that's typical for New York City. I would say it's a, a little bit accentuated here, it being in Times Square, and the amount of time that trucks had to, you know, pass in and out through, you know, the tunnels to get to uh, the city. Well, she had to wait for Elmo and the naked cowboy to get out of the way to, to start moving things around. <laughs> that's right. The complexity wasn't merely a matter of lifting the theater, which we'll detail in a second, but staging and scheduling, as you can imagine, was also a challenge. Staging and scheduling were probably one of the most difficult parts of this entire project because there were so many things going on at any one time. It wasn't just a theater lift. It was the demolition of the tower above the theater. It was stabilization of the existing structure. It was the excavation below the theater and below the West Tower. There were load transfers happening at existing columns to new structure. And then eventually you had new superstructure rising up through the ground while demolition was occurring. So if you, you, you could 
you could look at any one of those pieces and see how complicated they were. And if you put them all together, you really understand the level of complexity of this project. Benny, would you agree? Yeah, and I think to your point, like there's a hundred different things going on at the same time in different areas of the building. And, and Joe and his team, you know, they'd look at us, they'd say Mancini Severed, we have accessibility here and today we could actually work there. And that means we have to change this or change that. And then we, you know, our, our teams would kind of whip it up and try to, you know, even though we had these documents for, you know, two years sitting around, but because something became available to work on, so we would re-engineer and the architects would redraw and we'd, you know, do what we could to open up because if, if Pavarini found a spot that they could work, they were going to work. So, and we, you know, we had to facilitate that. And that, that's why we're all such good friends because that was like, we, we, we that went on for, you know, for the whole project. One of the more unique things about this project too is that the developer actually had a large field office a block away from the project in which all the, the design team, construction team, the developer, everybody all coexisted in that in that facility five days a week, sometimes more than that. So rather than, you know, somebody from from Joe's team sending an email out to my team and Ben's team and then, you know, how things can get an email, it was literally just, you know, turning over to the person there and that really uh, give all the credit in the world to the developer for that because it, it facilitated a lot of a lot of communication that went quicker and better than it would have particularly on some other projects had everybody been separated. And, you know, one thing to just throw in there for funsies in the middle of all this, you, you throw a global pandemic into the soup that, you know, added for some other, some other fun activities and challenges. Now for the part you've likely been waiting for lifting the historic palace theater. The Palace Theater was disconnected from its existing foundation and lifted 30 feet above to be part of the new six-floor podium designed to be a retail and entertainment destination. Each floor will house new retail and experiential spaces, similar to the likes of Galleria Melissa or National Geographic Encounter Ocean Odyssey. Ben Alper, principal at Severud Associates Consulting Engineers, the structural engineer of record, explains the approach to achieving this incredible feat. The theater, if you think about it, is sort of a, a empty box, if you will. Heavy walls on the perimeter, right? The roof, all the roof loads go down to the perimeter walls, and then you have a base. So think about you kind of lifting a, a, a hollow box with most of the load around the perimeter. So what we did is we went in there, we put in these concrete ring beams, very stiff concrete beams, varying in depth from about two to six feet uh, around the perimeter, and that made a very strong base to lift from, for something very stiff to lift from. The foundation and lift subcontractor, which it's Urban um, Foundations, led by Tony Mazzo, uh, they came in f- and drilled these caissons into the ground. So kind of, if you would, like a hydraulic lift, sort of like you might have in a hydraulic elevator, by the sort of plunger into the ground. And they built 34 of these, I'll call them plungers, into the ground that were pushed up underneath these concrete beams. And then when it came time to lift, we had 34 jacking mechanisms set of four jacks per post and each one of those jacks would lift and we could lift in six inch increments and that plunger would push up on the bottom of that concrete beam and we would lift about six inches at a time it makes really interesting noises when we lift like as little like pings and dings as the thing kind of rides up there and you kind of get used to them but it's a little, a little bit eerie kind of listen for the right noise and then that you know we do it and we'd repeat and then just slowly but surely lifted it you know between four and six inches at a time I mean, I think, Joe, it went pretty smooth, all things considered. I would say so. The building's still there. 
<laughs> Thankfully. <Yeah. laughs> if it wasn't, we wouldn't, still, we wouldn't be on the podcast. <laughs> uh, that would have sucked. We'd, we'd all be in a different room right now. The logistics of executing this process were absolutely incredible. That's something that you know we started thinking about about four years before the theater was even listed. And that design changed and was modified in varying degrees as we progressed as we had a better understanding of access limitations and even underground utilities that need to be bypassed. Lifting posts had to be moved to allow for the high voltage Con Ed lines, which were actually going underneath the theater. So we need to make slight modifications. We had something, a concept, four years ago. What ended up happening was very much different, if you ask me. But it's something that we, it was an evolution of a concept that took a long period of time to create many meetings, a lot of time together, just to understand everything that was going on. There were so many aspects in and around the theater that need to be modified to accommodate the theater lift too. So it wasn't happening in a silo. So many things were happening at any one time. Every time before we would do a lift, whether it be a, you know, two or three feet in a day or just the first couple inches, there was a series of, I don't Joe was like 10 or 12 of us, something like that, of different engineering firms and architecture firms and other consultants who had to go and walk into the theater, look at it, you know, make sure, you know, if, if there was a little something, a reading here, a reading there, and look at it and just make sure that things looked right every time we lifted. So, it would, you know, it, it really wasn't just like, just a, it, it was collaboration and design. And then even during the process, a slew of people had to really, you know, get eyes on this thing, all doing different specific things. Monitoring devices were everywhere, both measuring the stroke of the jacks, the movement of the theater, position of the theater and vibrations on adjoining properties, on our property. The lift, like you said, it happened in two stages. You know, there was the Tesla, which we did just to understand if the jacks had actually moved. And then subsequently, we had two phases of lift, which coincided with placement of permanent structure to help stabilize both the theater and the area around the theater. From design to construction, the project was marked by the innovative use of technology. The LED pucks, as we called them, you know, I mean, we had so many of us on, we had several mock-ups in varying places on the Eastern seaboard over the years in which this whole technology was developed because it didn't exist. I think early on, you know, it was anything from just kind of random lights that were put in there. And then it was getting that. So A, it's weather tight. B, so somebody could go up there and service them replace them and then getting that technology to talk to each other it's really it hadn't been done before so that was developed with the again with the entire design team and construction team along with the curtain wall subcontractor as well to because it just didn't exist before and when you when you i was actually out to dinner with my wife a few weeks ago and we were in a cab going down the road and i was just like look at that and when you see it it actually is quite striking because it goes all the way up the building you know construction technology could be the post-tension strains which are used in a different way than, you know, ever. And, and Benny can speak to that. There was other technology in the sense that we used monitoring devices in the concrete to monitor temperature and strength. I mean, we could add any one of those. Yeah, so what Joe was talking about is above the theater, right, there's an existing transfer structure that when we were lifting the theater was going to be in the way. So there was this existing 135-foot long, I'm going to call it bridge for lack of a better term, maybe you want to call it tabletop, but it's a bridge sitting on four columns, and it held the, the existing tower. And as we needed to lift the theater up, we needed to get it out of the way. So we built 
a concrete box girder. It's three sort of three beams looped together, 44 foot deep, 100, about 135 feet long. And we have these post-tension strands. We couldn't find post-tension strands in the U.S. that were large enough, so we had to bring them in from overseas. We got, a, I believe, is the largest jack that they have in the U.S., Joe, right? They, they, had, they had to get two of them, special for our job, specially calibrated. It's actually from Europe. Oh, the jack came from Europe? Okay. See, I thought it was from... Came from Europe. Came from Europe. Uh, we brought it from overseas. And yeah, and, and we basically, it's just deep, these sort of like deep bridge strands, and they pulled post-tension them on the end, and it was a sort of a unique usage of it. Again, it's sort of like a bridge up in the air. You don't see it, but structurally, it's, it's sort of interesting for us. You know, it was a good usage. They talk about uh, you know, the accessibility of the site, trying to do that in structural steel. Proof was going to be very difficult, trying to find area to lay down, bolt up. But because it was just, you know, it was strands and concrete, the concrete gets pumped and the strands just get placed, kind of come in a spool. So it was sort of an easy way to build it. We had looked at many ways along the, along the years how to build these uh, transfers, and that ended up being, let's say, the easiest construction-wise. Would it save us like like two months of construction or something like that, Joseph? Something pretty substantial. It did. It did. It had both to do with the schedule and cost-related issue. The research that we did on the post-tension to steel girder was done early on in the project, probably two years before we even started, when one day I think Kowsey from Severut sat down with Benny and I think Eric McGovern and wrote on a piece of paper, Derek, I think I want to do this with post-tension cables. And from there, it turned into a number of different pricing exercises, which have eventually turned into the, the GERD that we see there today. But as Benny was referring to, it's, you know, it's, it's unlike any other box girder that I think has ever been built. As a matter of fact, uh, structural technologies has indicated that it's, you know, probably the the highest and tallest post-tension girder in the northeastern part of the United States, it being obviously over 100 feet in the air. And there's over 210,000 lineal feet of post-tension cable in this girder, 36 tendons, 12 each girder, 5,300 lineal feet of plastic ducts, which uh, contain all these strands, which were tensioned to over 2 million pounds of force using this jack, which was transported to from Europe to the United States and calibrated actually Lehigh University using the largest jack calibration machine that exists in the United States. So it's, it's extremely unique. What we did was unique from everything from the cables to the, the end locks. It's nothing like you've ever seen before in post-tension. Just to, you know, because of the, the concrete heat and, the, and all the different pieces that had to go in, we actually built a piece of it uh, in a yard in New Jersey before we built the building, right? Just because you, you had to look at it and make sure everything was going to fit and things were going to work out right. We actually built, uh, what was it? It was like it was eight, by, eight foot by eight foot by like four and a half feet deep. So something like that piece with, you know, the, 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 the conduits for the strands and the rebar. And we built like a, the, the heaviest section, the more, most congested section. And we built it and we poured the concrete and we, you know, we monitored it and we tested it just to make sure that when we got there to do the real thing, that we would be in, in good shape. Post-tensioning is, you know, is a fairly common technique, but doing it with girders of that height and that size is unique. It, it's a different. Uh, we, we also did something where we staged the post-tensioning. So meaning we built, you know, 10 floors of load, and then we came in and pulled the strands. And we built 10 more floors of load and built, pulled the strands. Uh, and what that does is it, right, it sort of, as you pull the strand, it kind of forces the girder up. So as the, as, as the beam, call, let's call it a beam for a second, uh, if, as the beam sort of naturally uh, deflects and comes down, then you pull the strands and it kind of pops it back up. So you really don't get very much net movement, right? As it, as it deflects a little bit, it comes right back up. So it, it worked really well in terms of us making the building, even though the building's 100, sitting on a 135-foot-long girder, it just kind of is it's still, I mean, by the time they were done, it was basically stick straight, which is, you know, rare for something that long. 
The TSX Broadway project was not just about the physical transformation of a building. It was a testament to human ingenuity, collaboration, and the ability to overcome seemingly insurmountable challenges. There was so many different things that were going on at any one time on this project, from the stabilization of the tower during demolition, the installation of new concrete superstructure from the subcellar up, excavation of the cellar below the theater and below the West Tower. I mean, I could go on and on. You know, if I think about it, I think the most difficult part of this project in many ways was just trying to get all these pieces working together within the confines of the schedule and being able to move move uninhibited. I'm going to give a similar answer. There's three or four things on this job that like from a, like from a, a design perspective were incredibly complicated and unique usages of different things. But at the end of the day, it's just math and science and their basic principles. And yes, we found really creative, unique ways to apply and do things that we've done in either other projects or in smaller ways. But, but you know, uh, even though with the technology, nothing was really, you know, we, we, we created things from things that were already there, but trying to put the pieces together and doing it with, you see the three of us here representing three firms, but there's, I don't remember the number, there's a huge number of firms that were involved on the, uh, you know, on the construction side, but on, on the architecture side, on the engineering side, we, we have like a dozen different engineers doing different things from sign to, you know, engineers designing the sign and a theater lift engineer and, you know, someone else doing supports of excavation and someone doing the means and methods engineering, just a whole, whole slew of different people doing different things. And just trying to, uh, you know, for us as engineer of record for the project and, and Kaz Eugene, our principal, is the one signing, signing on everything effectively. It was about just making sure that we had all the pieces together, that there was no gaps, and that sort of everything worked together. And that, like Joe's saying, he's talking about from the build side, I'm talking about from the design side. It, it's just a lot of people and a lot of moving parts and a lot of different consultants. And, you know, like Bill is AOR and us as EOR, just trying to make sure we got everything and they worked together. And, and that was just extremely challenging. I would add in there, architecturally, there was a lot of things that were challenging, but uh, I would say the most difficult thing that I saw or participated in was the vertical circulation of the building. You know, egressing people from the 49th floor of a hotel down through a building that has all these different and sometimes conflicting type of uses was a challenge. You know, we, we, we by way of example, you couldn't have somebody exiting their hotel room, going into a stair with, you know, their bathrobe with purple hair and then walking into a Broadway show from the same stairway. So separating all of that circulation, getting people to circulate through that building and more, most importantly, to egress through that building was really a challenge. And we really, you know, our team really collectively all came up with a lot of very creative solutions in many cases that involved fitting things in places where you know the conversation with with benji's team would be like hey can you literally shave like a half an inch off this beam so we could fit a stair in here and you know in the spirit of this project the answer was always yes we'll figure it out but it was literally the, the vertical circulation in this building because of the different uses and because of the separation and because of you know people exiting a theater at the same time and then the sheer quantity of people was 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 quite a challenge and I'm, I'm i'm super proud of our team and all the entire team for being able to figure it out and satisfy all of those different needs and, and concerns of the various various stakeholders of the building the lessons learned from this project were invaluable for everyone involved i just think the collaborative nature of this project was outstanding and the way that 
you know, every time something came up, because, you know, we did a set of drawings, to your point, we did drawings, we did model, Revit model, all, all this good stuff. And until you actually get into it, things things tend to surface. And I think the collaborative nature in which the problems were solved was, was something that I hadn't necessarily seen on this level yet in my career. And I think it was something that, you know, I'd like to obviously see carried forward on future work. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we did a, a lot of things really well. I mean, the one thing that I, f- I feel like when we, you know, we didn't understand this thing when we started it. Like, I mean, I think we we'll, we pretend like we did, but we didn't really understand mm-hmm. what this was and how exactly the pieces are going to fit together. I do wish we had early on done a better job, sort of, because like I said, we had so many consultants and so many different things. We probably could have done a better job. Now I look back, defining on who d- does exactly what, because there would be times where we'd say, okay. Is this yours? Is that mine? And we work it out. But uh, and again, probably we couldn't have done it then. We couldn't have figured it out in the beginning. But now that looking back on it and we see sort of like, oh, well, we should have decided up front that you know, this engineer has this piece or you know, this is temporary and this is permanent. And there's a, there's a lot of that. We, you know, we did a really good job of taking structure that was needed for temporary things and making it permanent. But then you had these sort of like things where it's sort of like means and methods engineer designed it and then we designed it and who's detailing it and whose drawing does it go on. And probably, we, you know, going forward, I, th- I think we would start earlier and really actually sit out and just write it out and have it like on a piece of paper or a board or somewhere just to like sort of know it going, you know, going forward and especially on something that unique. I think going forward, we try to do that. I would say lessons learned. If I were to go back, uh, plan your vacations very well. <laughs> Always select the ability to get a full refund. <laughs> <laughs> Because you may have to cancel it and stay on site as a, but you know we we all sacrificed a lot for this project. Remember, there were times when Benny was on vacation in Israel, and he'd be calling up. It was eight o'clock in the morning here, and I don't know what time it was there. You know, we all made a lot of sacrifices, and when you go onto a project like this, I think you all have to be willing to take a little bit of a sacrifice. You know, because at the end, there's got to be a huge reward, but. Bill, you know, we've all had our bumps and bruises, but we made it through it. So <laughs> exactly. sometimes you just need to get your skin thick and just push forward and, you know, you'll get to the end. We had one concrete pour that went on for, I don't know, it was like a, the day was the, the morning was the rebar inspection and then the concrete pours at night. And our inspector, Megan, I, she, she had been there already for like, I don't know, I should say this. She'd been there for some ridiculous number of hours. And I, was, and I sent someone there to, to relieve her so she could go get sleep for a couple hours in the hotel. And I, I just, I, I couldn't get her to go. I couldn't get her to go. She's like, no, I'm staying here. I said, you're going to be up for 25 hours. She's, I'm staying. I said, I said no, no, no. Wait. I'm sending another engineer there. If you want to stay, I can't force you to leave, but I'm sending you someone else. It's like, but, 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 but that's the dedication. It's, it's, every firm had, you know, we had people like that that just like, you know, they lived and, in, you know, and, and this was again, just dur- during the pandemic. So there were people, you know, there, there were complications and, you know, pe- people really pushed through, you know, all, all of our teams really worked hard. One key note that the chat with Bill, Ben, and Joe revealed is that if you have the opportunity to lead a similar project, the difficult nature of the work and the people behind that work is something to always keep in mind. Having some empathy for your staff that's working on this and the people, I mean, you know, we've mentioned some folks and we have so many folks here, like in particular this guy, John McCampbell, who was on it from day one and is still here. The amount of effort required by people and the amount of 
quite frankly, you know, the toll it can take on people's personal lives being on a project like this, trying to have some empathy for them and, and, and making sure that, you know, being honest with people that this, and this is what you're getting into. This is probably going to be the coolest project you've ever worked on, but it's not going to be always an easy or fun process. You know, I, during COVID, when everybody else was sitting in their basement, you know, we had people coming into the city every day working on this project. You know, we had a lot of people and really good people, unfortunately, who worked for periods of time on this project and, you know, <laughs> tapped out at some point because it was just too much. So it's, you know, it's, I think it's really just kind of the human element of it and how recognizing and trying to have some level of empathy or trying to plan for the, I don't want to say toll because it's such a negative connotation, but it is, you know, it, it's a lot. It's a lot for somebody to work on a project like this. I think that's great advice that people don't always remember to think or talk about the people. Because at the end of the day, it's all materials in a pile. It doesn't happen without the people. Right. And listen, full disclosure, I could have probably done a better job of that over the years. So. Well, we all learn. There you go. Bill said it pretty well. I, I agree with him. Yeah, he, he said it pretty well. I mean, he, he's 100% right. It, it's, all, it's all about the people and how much they time and effort and everything they gave into it. And, and that's what makes us you know, sit here and look really good because they, they did all the hard work. From lifting a historic theater to new heights to designing cutting-edge LED signage, every aspect of the project pushed the boundaries of what was possible. The TSX Broadway project exemplifies what can be achieved when ambitious vision, innovative engineering, and unwavering determination come together. It has reshaped the iconic Times Square and set a new standard for the blending of historic preservation with modern innovation. In the heart of New York City, a new landmark has emerged, telling a story of creativity, resilience, and the enduring spirit of human achievement. Before we close out this episode, I typically try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. However, after spending seven years working on this project, I was more curious this time what Bill, Joe, and Ben's favorite space in the building was. I actually love the standing under the theater itself because when we actually lifted it, right, I think Joe, Joe talked about it briefly, but the technology, we had all this monitoring set up. But we, had a, we, had, we had a computer screen where we could just watch all the sensors, but the screen was with everything else, right, under the theater. So as we're standing under the theater and we're lifting, you know, this thing over our heads, that, that's where all the action was. So I, it's still for me, like, sort of nostalgic to stand there under the theater and, and think about us, you know, having this, like, really heavy building moving above our heads, standing there watching these, like, monitors to make sure the tilt was exactly right. I like standing under the theater. Well, the, the, the attention-hungry musician in me <laughs> loves the stage and would, would kill to be standing over there with a West Pole and a big old Marshall stack behind me. So I guess I'll go with the stage. I totally knew you were going to say that, by the way. Yeah, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> That's interesting. That's a good pick. You know, my favorite part of the structure is actually right underneath the underside, in the middle of the box girder, because it reminds me of everything that really came before that point and everything that happened after all the time and energy that we spent getting up there and then obviously seeing it through to fruition. So standing in the middle there just really puts everything into perspective for me. I really enjoyed this conversation with Bill, Joe, and Ben. I wish I would have had a few more hours. I hope this episode sparks a new idea 
helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. I'd say that, that, that I'm, I'm only here because like Kazuya Jima is the engineer of record. I started working here you know, it was 20 years ago under him and uh, some other great partners. And I'm only here because of what they gave to me. And they really, you know, pushed me along when I needed it. And they, you know, I, I, I am here because of them. And I, I try to pay it forward and sort of help out the, the, the next generation. I'm thankful for everything that everyone's given me. And I just you know, try, try to pay it forward and try to like, build talks all about the people, enrich them the way I've been enriched over all these years. I'm going to tie bits and pieces of what we just talked about. Obviously, applying strategic thinking, planning, effective people management, dedicating yourself to high-quality construction standards that shape and eventually improve the world around us. You know, it would be mine. I think it, it grew as I've been on this project and been surrounded by great people like Bill, Benny, and all the other people that I've worked with over the years. So I've learned a lot from them. It's made me a better person, and I'm thankful for that. I would go with the old Popeye thing that, you know, you are who you are. And I think that there's so many people in our industry that either put on airs or like to, you know, act as they're smarter than they are and everything. I think it's okay to just be yourself. And, you know, if you don't know something, if you work with somebody who, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to work like somebody, like with the, with the folks like, like Benji and Joe and the folks on this team and, you know, learn from them and don't be afraid to ask questions and don't, you know, don't let your ego get in the way of that. There's enough people here that do that. And if we all, we all put our egos aside and just be ourselves, we can, you know, we can probably do some pretty great things. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.